listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Sean Winter. And today we're looking at the text relating to the second Sunday in Epiphany in Year A, uh, looking at text from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7, Then we're going to move on and talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 with a bit of an introduction to 1 Corinthians as well. And then our gospel text for today is John chapter 1 verses 29 to 42. Robin, tell us about Isaiah chapter 49 and this section which in my Bible has the title The Servant's Mission. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, we could have a whole conversation about those titles in the Bible and how helpful they are. But yeah, this is another one of those sort of um, often referred to as sort of suffering suffering servant. We've got a number of these songs collected across the sort of chapters 40 into early 50s of Isaiah. Um, And if folks read this and felt a bit confused about who this servant was. Um, that's For entirely, good reason, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, of course, later Christians would interpret Christ in, um, you know, yep. using some of this imagery. We get the sharp sword in Revelation, for example, and, and this idea of a servant who's abhorred and rejected, all of this. Um, but here it flips between talking about a servant as if it's an individual yep. And an imagery a lot like Jeremiah one classic call imagery of you know God shaping and calling people before they're even known to the rest of us, um, and then this I um, addressing of you are my servant Israel yep. like so a communal servant the nation becomes God's servant, uh, and you know scholars have tried to figure out what it's supposed to be I think it's working at multiple levels. So in in these chapters in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 we often mm-hmm. call them second or deutero Isaiah they they come from the period of the um the Babylonian exile. Yep. And uh this notion of someone who is spoken of um in the third person as the servant whom God addresses or whom mm-hmm. uh the prophet speaks about um, this is a kind of regular feature of these chapters, and this seems to be the second major section where we get this kind of identification of the servant. And yeah. the classic question, I mean, scholars debate it, the commentaries are all over this, is, well, is this an individual? And if so, who is it? And then what do we do about the fact that sometimes it seems to be the nation as a whole? Yes. Um, and I think you're right. This passage kind of mixes up like a prophetic call narrative, which sounds a bit like the narrative of Isaiah. Yeah. Um, there's language here about... Um, kind of delegation to royal authority this language of military conquest my mouth like a sharp sword he made me a polished um arrow Mm -hmm. um and then in verse four we kind of switch almost to a lament psalm you know but this was all in vain i spent my strength for nothing and for vanity and yet surely my cause is with the lord that that reads like a kind of psalm of thanksgiving in some way or another so it's a really interesting mashup um, of a text about about uh, this figure of the servant. Yep. What 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 do you think the key role of the servant is? What what why is the servant whoever the servant is? What's their calling or their vocation? I think there's two things I would point to. One is in verse three, yeah. where we are. You know that the servant is addressed, or Israel is addressed. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now we can skip right over that because it sounds very biblical language but in the setting of Isaiah in this exile after devastation and in fact shame the nation has been defeated the temple has been destroyed and yet God's promise to them through the 
the uh, prophet is you you will be the source of my glory. So there's a restoration of honour going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, the sort of hope. But really I think the key call to answer your question comes towards the end of our passage and all this language of being light to the nations, yep. right? Um, verse 6 in particular, yep. you'll be a light, um, you'll restore the survivors of Israel so we get an image of restoration. And then this light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth we're not so far from Christmas that we aren't thinking perhaps of the opening of Luke where, you know, Jesus and even John the Baptist's birth mm, again mm. will pick up some of this imagery of mm. wombs and, you know, callings that begin before births and then lights. And something about the promise of God being kind of bigger and more expansive than you might otherwise have assumed. Yeah. Um, I really like the implied challenge in this passage uh, like the first four verses are really about the past if you look at the 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 tenses there he made my mouth he made me a polished arrow he said to me and it's as if this this affirmation about the past calling kind of fits within predefined categories of you know the appointment of a prophet to speak judgment to israel or the appointment of a king to conquer israel's Mm. enemies and then in, in verse 9, you get this very emphatic, and now the Lord says, yeah. who formed me in the womb, that's the past. Um, and what God says is in verse 6 in the present, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So the idea that you're just going to come and deliver Israel, mm. the idea that you're just there to offer a prophetic word to God's own people, that's too small a vocation. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Your vocation is bigger than that and wider than that and more expansive um, than that and is summed up in that phrase, light to the nations, which, of course, does get picked up in the New Testament. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't think we can stress that too much. There's there's both um, something new happening here in the context of Isaiah but also something that's entirely continuous, Absolutely. right? Uh, you know, it, reading this again took me back to that Genesis 12, that the original covenant and call with Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Mm. You know, there's something about being a covenant people that has always been about looking beyond Israel. We'll get this... Um, you know, in the New Testament, of course, with Paul and the expansive mission to the Gentiles. Uh, you know, so if if you're playing with call this week, which is a theme we're going to see, yeah, will yeah. be cropping up all over the place. You know, again, this is a traumatized and hurting community, a community in crisis, probably with limited resources after warfare, and yet they're called to be a light to others. Mm. And it seemed to me there was something um, very analogous to a lot of mainstream churches today who feel st- limited resources. Stress, right. post-COVID, all sorts of stresses, and the call keeps pushing us outwards, not just to minister to ourselves. Yeah, but, good. You know. So it's uh, you might paraphrase it. You know, it's it's too small a thing, thing. to um, take up a vocation that is simply about your own survival. It's too small a thing to respond to a call of God to say, you know, what we're seeking is the renewal of the people of God or the revival of the church or something. That those kinds of vocations are too narrow and too small mm-hmm. in the light of the revelation of God's purposes. And I, I, I think yeah, it's really it. I think it's really nice how this move between the individual and the community then works because it means that when you we read scripture and we read about individuals who respond to a particular call or vocation, um, you know, we'll look at the disciples in John one, for example, the invitation is always to say Okay, what that was? What is it that was true for them in their vocation and calling that is now true, not just for me, but for us as a whole? How how does it shape the calling and the vocation of the people of God in general? Precisely. 
Let's perhaps move on to 1 Corinthians because we're going to pick up these themes again in a moment. Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion? So the lectionary gives us 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 today and it's the first of four weeks where we get continuous, we're getting a chapter and a bit of Corinthians Um, and then the fifth week takes us forward a little bit but, um, you know, five weeks of Corinthians and, you know, it strikes me preachers might think about doing a theme. Yeah, it would be a good chance to do a little five-week series on on 1 Corinthians and that opening chapter which is a really important and I think really intriguing chapter in terms of just understanding quite what's happening in the church at Corinth and then what Paul is trying to do by writing this letter. Yeah. So, Sean, tell us um, a little bit about the setting, what we need to know to kind of get into the world of this particular letter of Paul. Yeah. So I think the starting point is to say that Corinth was a place that Paul visited where he seems to have founded an early Christian uh, community, um, as far as we can tell, probably consisting largely of Gentiles, if not exclusively so. And uh, Acts tells us that Paul spends quite a lot of time in Corinth, about 18 months. We can actually date, it's one of the few places where we can be a bit specific about the date. Paul arrives around the year AD 51 um, in Corinth, stays there about 18 months, and then he moves on to Ephesus. And uh, what we know is that between um, Paul leaving Corinth to go to Ephesus and him writing what we call 1 Corinthians, there was some earlier correspondence Mm. that we probably don't have. So we think that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that's now lost to us, and we think that the Corinthians wrote back. And we can say that 1 Corinthians very strongly seems to be Paul's response to the Corinthians letter. Because what he does later in 1 Corinthians is he basically picks the topics that they seem to have been writing about. He uses this phrase, now concerning food offered to idols, now concerning... Um, you know, whether Christians can take each other to court. Um, now concerning what happens when you worship in the assembly. And that phrase now concerning seems to have some sense of now I'm going to deal with the topics that you've already asked yeah. me about or that we've addressed. So um, so 1 Corinthians is a bit of a ragbag at one level because it, <laughs> it starts off with four chapters of kind of um, semi autobiography as Paul talks about his ministry in the Corinthian community but then this extensive reflection on the nature of Paul's gospel itself which is what 1 Corinthians 1 will be all about Um, but by chapter 5 we're into the first of the issues and we basically move through the issues through the rest of the letter Um, 2 Corinthians is another thing altogether (laughs) yeah let's not go there (laughs) Um, we won't even go there but but we yeah. need to know that 1 Corinthians actually isn't the first letter that Paul wrote yeah. to the Corinthians. It's probably the second. Yeah, so we're stepping into the middle into of a the conversation. the middle of a conversation, and we're only hearing Paul's side of it. Yeah. And we just get allusions to the kinds of things. And, and one of the challenges is sometimes to know whether or not when Paul writes something, whether we should put some quotation marks around yes. it. Because if we do, then it means that it isn't Paul's view. He's quoting the view of the Corinthians. Famously in 1 Corinthians 7, now it is well for a man not to touch a woman. Now, is that Paul's view or is that Paul quoting the Corinthians' view, which he then goes on to challenge in the argument of 1 Corinthians That's right, yeah. It does make reading Paul's letters because we're we're challenging because we we have to 
yeah, do try the, and guess what he's responding to, the other side of the phone call, so to speak. Yeah, but, we call it mirror reading and it's yeah. pretty tricky to do yeah. and do well. I mean, the, the thing that seems to yeah. be at stake throughout 1 Corinthians is basically this question of how Paul's gospel of the crucified Christ relates to a whole bunch of cultural, social, normative assumptions that people who live in a city like Corinth in the midst of the Greco-Roman world would hold as self-evident and obvious. Mm. Things like... um, uh, things like uh, impressive speech and eloquence and clever rhetoric is an obvious sign of your authority and uh, your status within a society. Um, the Corinthians seem to assume that that's the case um, yeah. and therefore are critical of Paul because he doesn't have that eloquence. So Paul has to engage with that argument and switch it on its head by arguing that actually the cross is known in foolishness and not in um, That's right. rhetorical evidence. And his foolishness is evidence of God working through That's him. That's exactly right. Yeah, all, all of that. I mean, there are some scholars that think Paul was probably actually quite a poor speaker, but his letters were powerful. So. Yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a deep irony in Chapter 1 when we read it in subsequent weeks. I mean, Paul says rhetoric doesn't matter <laughs> using... Very rhetoric. sophisticated <laughs> rhetoric. <laughs> yes, so you got to you, Paul. Paul is cheeky. Would yep. be a you got to sort of read him with a bit of an eye to that. Now the verses we have today are in some ways the the very positive beginning yep. of the letter, so That's a right. classic epistolary opening. Yep. Um, but we shouldn't just glance over these. Followed by Thanksgiving, I should say. Yeah. So, but we shouldn't glance over these as unimportant because, in fact, in Paul's the way he introduces and starts letters, even though in some ways it's formulaic, it's both conventional, but then it's modified. It tells us a lot about absolutely what we're going to encounter. Absolutely. So, what do we see here about Paul, the way he frames himself, and what he's going to do? Well, I think I'd note three things, and I'll just draw your attention to three verbs that are used, or three main kind of words mm. that are used. The first is, it's an opening that places a strong emphasis on the notion of calling. Yes. In verse 1, Paul is called to be an apostle. Um, in verse 2, the Corinthians are called um, to be saints. Um, and later on, Paul refers to um, the, the God has called us mm. into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 9. So this notion of calling is really important here. Um, and for Paul, this this isn't simply... Uh, it, it's not simply a kind of conversion language. No. It's a part of his language of being drawn into some kind of new identity, the construction of a new identity that is shared with others with whom you have been called and that is oriented towards um, Paul's understanding of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, the second is the language of gifting. When Paul um, thinks about uh, what he wants to give thanks for. In other letters, he gives thanks for things like partnership in the gospel or mm. your faith and hope and love. Here he gives thanks because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. And remember that the word grace in Greek, charis, actually means a gift. Yes. So it's the gifts of, I mean, there are three words here. I give thanks, which is a, also a charis word, um, because of the gift that has been given to you uh, in Christ Jesus. And Paul in particular identifies two gifts. He's not just talking about grace as an abstract thing. Two things. One is the capacity to speak in a certain way, so speech. And the second is the capacity to know and understand mm. in a certain way. 
and it will be clear in what happens in the rest of chapter 1 and into the rest of 1 Corinthians that this question about speech and knowledge are really the things that are at stake for Paul as he wants to work um, and modify the Corinthians' understanding. And then the third verb, sorry, just to move on, is uh, in verse 6 he talks about not lacking any spiritual gift, that same language, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So calling, gifting, and waiting seem to be the three themes that are struck. And the waiting one is really interesting because I think, as we'll see, the Corinthians uh, are overly impatient or overly confident about how quickly they have received everything that God wants to give them. They, they, they kind yeah. of think that they've got it all they've already. They've kind of arrived. They've kind yeah. of arrived. Yes. And Paul uh, will modify that. So in technical terms, we talk about over-realized eschatology, and mm. Paul works hard to say, well, yeah, you may think that you've been rich, but actually you've still got a hell of a lot to learn and there's a long way to go yet. Yeah, and we're going to get to that next next week. Absolutely. Um, it really struck me too, it's, it's worth us just noting because we lose this in the English. He's addressing a community here and those use the you verb um, language, you yep. know, that, that you've received, you've been enriched, um, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. These are all plurals. They are. So, so again, we've got this a bit like the Isaiah sense. It is the community that's been gifted, which is why he can say you're not lacking. It's not that one person has absolutely. all the gifts. Absolutely. And, of course, this might make us think one of Paul's print. other stuff, right, the members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, that whole yep. image is in support of that basic idea. And it's also that the language of calling relates to this. So yeah. when, I say, when Paul says you've been called, what he doesn't mean is, you as an individual, Sosthenes, you weren't a Christian and now God's called you and you are a Christian. Mm. What he means, you as a community are gathered into some kind of shared or common identity shaped by the gospel of Christ. And I'm going to write a letter to you that helps you to think about what that looks like. Yes. I mean, it, it just this is one of those weeks, and I don't feel this actually happens that often, where the lectionary has, I think, a very strong theme, and particularly in the two passages we've talked about so far, there's a risk it becomes a bit individualised in the John passage, yep. um, but really about the call of communities yep. to live out. And also the, the other theme that strikes me links this to Isaiah is is that verse 9. Um, you know, the Greek word, word order here, emphasizes the faithful. Faithful, faithful is, is God, God, right? The one who called you. Um, and again, we have that language in Isaiah of God's faithfulness is is the consistent theme throughout all these unlikely callings and sometimes rather bizarre callings and commissionings in the Bible. That's right. And again, the singular plural thing works. So the verb to call is plural. You, plural, you all have been called into the fellowship is a bad translation, the kind of partnership um, mm. uh, the participation, the sharing. the sharing, but that's singular. You yes. are all called into a singular point of common shared identity um, in uh, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Mm. Do you want to say anything else about that, or should we pick up themes once we've talked about John? I think let's pick up and let's go to John. Okay. So John one twenty nine to 42... Uh, Sean, where are we here? We we encounter um, a figure we often call by shorthand John the Baptist, but we haven't had a baptism, have we? Or what's going we, on in John? Well, we haven't, um, nor do we find one. No. Um, one of the striking things about the opening of the fourth gospel is while John 
clearly follows basically the same pattern that the Synoptic Gospels, I mean, after the prologue, obviously, which is its own thing, mm. but after that we get um, the appearance of John the Baptist, um, a description of John the Baptist's uh, preparatory ministry, um, and then in the other Gospels, of course, we get uh, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, uh, sorry, baptised, then tempted in the wilderness, um, and then coming down by the Sea of Galilee and calling mm. disciples, fishermen, um, Peter and Andrew, James and John. John has a very distinctive version of that same pattern, but there are several things that are striking. There is no temptation narrative. Mm. Neither does it ever say that Jesus is baptised by John. (laughs) What we do have is we have the descending of the Spirit, and then we have the calling of the disciples configured in a way that is historically interesting because John, uh, the Gospel writer John, seems to suggest in verse 35 that the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. That's historically really interesting and I think quite plausible. But then theologically really interesting because rather than simply the come here and follow me Mm. invitation, what we get is basically Christology woven into the thread of a call narrative. So it starts off with um, Jesus being called rabbi, um, then uh, Simon... uh, calls him the Messiah. A bit later on, Nathaniel will say he's the son of God and the king of Israel. And then yeah. at the end of chapter one, you get Jesus talking about the son of man. So this is a passage where the question of who Jesus is, is already woven deeply into the question of how he calls and invites people to follow him. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so much that one we could say about this passage because it is dense in a typical Johannine way. But <laughs> even in the first, so there's kind of two parts to what the lectionary has given us. Yep. And each one could be its own sermon or Bible yep. study. But I do think they talk to each other. Um, but as you've said, you know, we... We encounter Jesus for the first time in the passage we've been given. And in the first scene, he doesn't speak. He's simply pointed to. That's right. So it's almost like John's gospel kind of presents Jesus as this kind of icon, like here, here Mm. is the Lamb of God. And, of course, we've got this thick theology of Lamb of God, one who's anointed by the Spirit, um, one who's capable of baptizing others with the Holy Spirit, so passing on that presence of God, and then also Son of God language. Um, it might be worth us just clarifying Lamb of God because I think... Um, yeah, you know, so um, uh, well, there are two things to perhaps say about that. The first is, uh, I mean, John clearly uh, works with this Lamb of God imagery at a couple of places. One is at the beginning of the Gospel and then the other is at the end of the end. crucifixion scene. So Jesus is crucified in John's chronology at the same time as the Passover lambs are um, sacrificed. Yes, So uh, the imagery here, behold the Lamb of God, I think must be in the context of John's overall story, Passover imagery. Um, And the idea here, of course, is that um, Jesus' death will be the death that brings about the renewal of Israel, that liberates Israel from their sin and other things. But remembering too, Passover, I mean, the Passover lamb is not a sin sacrifice. Well, so that's the complication. Yeah, it's a liberation. uh, That's right. Um, So the phrase who takes away the sin of the world kind of crashes the Lamb of God symbolism into Day of Atonement symbolism, which is about goats, not lambs, actually. So, um, So we have this really interesting mix-up of sacrificial imagery and I I suspect that that's just a kind of creative thing that's Mm. emerged to John in his own tradition that as Jesus was thought about as the Passover lamb um, 
there may be potentially at least some kind of awareness of the fact that that's a Eucharistic symbol elsewhere in um, other parts of the New Testament. But the, the idea is that um, these Old Testament traditions are now fulfilled, summed up, gathered together in the life of Jesus, the story that I'm just about to tell. Yeah. Um, in chapter 2, um, John will say the same thing about the temple the temple's going to be destroyed, but actually that's actually the story about Jesus and his own death and resurrection. Yes. I mean, the other thing, I mean, this is such a familiar, this is verse 29, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Churches that have a Eucharist every week and sing the Agnus Day, this yep. is something that gets sung or said you know, almost every Sunday in some traditions. Um, the sin here is singular, yep. so it's also worth us noting this. This is something about, you know, it's not a moralistic kind of, you know, it's not to not include that, but sin here is this force that opposes life. Absolutely. So this lamb again, it has both that liberative, like you said. I think he's he's mixing his um, Old Testament traditions really to to speak to a fullness of of what Jesus' presence does. What's really interesting to me is the connection between that idea and then what John says in verse thirty, which is written in this kind of deeply ambiguous Greek using prepositions. Um, in the NRSV translated, this is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before <laughs> me. Um, and effectively what John is saying here is, um, as, I, as I've just said a bit earlier in chapter 1, this, this is the person that I've spoken about who I'm preparing for. So he comes yep. after me. He is ranks ahead of me in that he's more important than I am. Yep. But the reason that he's more important than I am is because actually – he is the Logos, the Word become flesh. He he was there at the beginning of creation. Yeah. <laughs> and it's there. Uh, so you get this strong association of um, the concrete event of Jesus' death and resurrection, this sacrificial imagery, mm. with these incredibly broad Christological claims that Jesus actually is, you know, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So, um, as I said, Christology is everywhere in this text. It is. And, I mean, if, if people didn't want to go the kind of call route this Sunday, it strikes me you could sit with the Gospel reading and particularly given that um, in the call story that follows with the two disciples, the invitation Jesus gives them is come and see. Sure. You know, what What are you seeking? Um, come and see. And, and again, there's this idea of looking at Jesus. And, and I think if we think about who we imagine Jesus to be, or you could do this with God generally, like who we think and imagine, you know, even visually uh, Jesus to be is going to, you know, hugely influence what we then testify to. So you could play a lot with the kind of Christology and the imagery here. The other thing to say is John begins, we get this pattern throughout John's gospel of, John the baptizer points and testifies to Jesus. Yep. Jesus points and testifies to God. That's right. So this is, again, what you do. Absolutely. And so that relates to the call stuff, right? A- absolutely. To be called is to testify to the presence of God as you've experienced God and to what God is doing. It's always to point beyond yourself. Absolutely. And the paraclete is given later on in John to enable the disciples to continue that testimony after Jesus has returned um, to the Father. Can I just pick up on yep. the language of sight? I think you've yeah. noted that. I think that's a really important thing to notice, um, that uh, what the disciples are invited to do is to answer the question, who are you looking for? Um, and to do so using this language of, you know, come and see. And mm. uh, I think it's a really um, dominant theme throughout the fourth gospel um, and, and invites this question for the preacher about, you know, n- not so much what the how do people actually envisage Jesus? How do you preach in such a way that you mm. offer people some kind of 
visual. Not, I mean, I don't mean in terms of you know what Jesus' face looked like, or not a PowerPoint, or not but, a PowerPoint, yeah, yeah but, but some kind of visual sense of this is not just about your intellectual assent. It's something about being compelled by a vision in some way or another. Um, it's really interesting that phrase. Who are you looking for? Yes. In chapter one, reappears right at the end of the gospel in the garden where Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. is asked, who are you looking for? It brackets the whole of the gospel and this yeah. certain notion of a, a quest for Jesus, uh, for, for spiritual insight into who Jesus actually is and what yeah. Jesus' significance is for you and your community and for the world. That's embedded, yeah. I think, in what Yes, um, what are you are. seeking? Who are what you are looking you for? Actually. Yeah, and, and again, that sight language is everywhere and the way John says, you know, Behold the Lamb of God, or look, here's the Lamb of God. It's all of that. Um, the other thing that strikes me too, I mean, just thinking about identity and some other things we've touched on already in the core stories, you know, these two disciples, I think they are John's disciples in yep. this narrative, who who then, you know, come seeking Jesus and stay with him. And then they call others and we get Simon coming in. Yep. Um and he gets renamed right at the end of our passage as you'll be called Kephas or, or Peter. Mm. So there's something about identity and renaming and, again, that, that that part of being called and then following is inviting others to come and see. Absolutely. That, that testimony, if you like, to what we've experienced and seen in faith. So the, mo- the motif of discipleship in the fourth gospel is primarily that of bearing witness, I think, mm. bearing witness to Jesus as to use the language from later on, the way, the truth, and the life, um, bearing witness to Jesus as the one in whom one's, one, one sees God at work. And uh, the other way that um, John uses, or the other language John uses, is this language of remaining, um, verse yes. uh, 39. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. And the verb there is the same verb used in the story of the vine, you know, yeah. abide in me and I will abide in you as I abide in the Father. That's the same language. And even though it describes here something fairly prosaic and mundane, John already has one eye on the depth of relationship that is established between Jesus and his disciples that yes. draws the disciples into the depth of Jesus' relationship with God. Totally. And Jesus is the one the Spirit remains on. Um, you know, they ask him, the NRSV has, where are you staying? But it, it is that same verb, where are you abiding? That's There's right. a sense of innocent, where are you inhabiting? Where are you living in the spiritual realm and he says come come and see come. as is so often the way in john's gospel a pretty straightforward ordinary <laughs> form of language always works with a double more spiritual and deeper meaning yeah any last words sean what would you preach if you were you well know? i think i would preach on this notion of call and vocation i think the question asked by raised by isaiah one corinthians and john is uh, the question well to what are we called mm. and how what what is responding to call look like yeah. Um, and we've learned that it's something that is about an invitation to join in something that is new that God is doing in the world. Um, and we've learned that it's something that we share together. It's not simply my individual response, but it forms my identity in relationship to other people who have responded to that same invitation. Yeah, and it's something that points us beyond ourselves and our immediate needs and, and you know, encourages us to both point to God and to think of the wider community and the way we bring light and life. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. World. Absolutely. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.